welcome to Niche to Necessity. My name is Taylor Zork, and today we have a very special guest, Anton Golub. He is the uh, strategic advisor for Pazar and also recently took on a new role with Swiss Asset Thou, which we'll get to at the end. Um, he is also a, uh, a founder and has served as CFO, CEO of Flovtech, a Swiss market maker providing liquidity solutions to digital asset exchanges token issuers, and protocols. So welcome, Anton. Thanks for joining us. Awesome. Yeah, great to be here. And thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to an awesome discussion, exciting one as well. Yeah, great. Um, so I would love to just have you start off by giving us a bit of detail on your background and, and how you came to be involved in the Web3 space. Yeah, so happy to share that uh, uh, interesting story. So just to say is, you know, my background actually is from the traditional finance. Uh, I actually worked, or I say in my previous life, I worked at a fairly big hedge fund in Switzerland as a high frequency trader. It was amazing experience, you know, uh, being, you know, at that times, it was kind of like a very admirable to work at a hedge fund, be a trader. And I also kind of felt I was very passionate about it, this intersection, technology, finance, markets, coding, you know, it was a great experience. And I worked with a very visionary person who ran the hedge fund, Richard Olson. Um, he was a pioneer in finance, uh, you know, on many occasions. And just to illustrate when I say pioneer, so he launched his first asset management company where he traded in a fully automated uh, manner back in 1985, before I was even born. So they traded through mainframes. So wow. really, you know, like a person that was always kind of at the edge of innovation. And then uh, how I got into the crypto industry is that, you know, Richard was always telling me about, ah, there is this new thing coming, it's called the blockchain, how about you read about it? And then I still remember the day very well today. I was in Geneva, he was in Zurich back in 2013. He called me one day and he said, Anton, I'm shutting down the hedge fund. Everybody's getting fired. And my first thought was like, wow, this is a really horrible start of the day. <laughs> and, but then he said, hey, you know, I've been telling you about this, uh, about blockchain, uh, you know, about cryptocurrencies, about the crypto industry. Uh, this is the new thing. So let's focus on that and let's be, build a startup in that. So that was back in 2013. We co-founded literally the second ever crypto company in Switzerland called Lika with a vision to build a, a digital asset exchange. So we, we understood kind of blockchain is a settlement layer. You can trade many different things. Cryptos are going to be a very important part, but you can trade a lot of other stuff, a lot of other tokens, you know. So, and we launched uh, back in 2013, worst possible timing ever. We launched and a few <laughs> months later, Mount, Mount Gox blew up for those who remember. And uh, it was brutal. So basically for a year, very similar like today. So kind of like F uh, Mount Gox was biggest exchange, 90% of the volume. Turns out it was a scam in the back, you know. So for a year, it was basically like, discussions were very non-productive, meaning people would ask you, what is this Mount Gox and what is Silk Road? I don't know if it remembers Silk Road anymore. So, but you know, it was, uh, I have to say that was a great experience. I was co-leading the company for almost five years. So we, you know, it was a massive success story back then, build the company from two to 200 people. So me and Richard at the beginning, later, you know, more than 200 people, office over the world, many different verticals within the company, one of the oldest biggest exchanges in Europe. It's kind of like a really great experience. Um, I had a fairly good idea for timing, but I was, was very lucky. So I did an exit in January, 2018. So literally at the peak. And then I launched a market making company where a market maker, very simple. When you run an exchange, you learn the first day how important liquidity is. For me, it was like a no brainer business model saying every exchange, every token within liquidity, market makers, uh, company who solves that problem, no brainer, you know, and uh, launched a company called Fluff Technologies. 
So a market maker for digital assets, you know, we are market making all of your top tier exchanges that I'm sure you and your uh, listeners and viewers know about, but also for a lot of projects, you know, so when they issue their own token, be the market makers. So some were market making so some really famous, huge project, projects, but also a lot of early stage ones. So uh, also then also had a fairly good idea for timing, but not perfect like in 2018. So did an exit in summer of last year. And now what I'm doing now is more on the advisory side, consulting side. So, you know, working with family offices, I'm a, uh, as you mentioned, you know, I'm an advisor also to Bazaar. Uh, I'm an, I, I recently launched an initiative called Swiss RSEDAO, uh, how to enable DAOs to actually provide legal framework, legal grounding, starting in Switzerland, and also advise a couple of crypto startups. So this is in a long story, 10 years yeah. compressed to a couple of minutes. <laughs> I mean, it, it feels like bad timing when you enter the market in a bear market, but ultimately, I mean, I feel like, you know, building in the bear market is so you have such an advantage because you, you know, you're showing that like you, you're committed to the industry. And I think that um, ultimately when you, when, then when the next bull run comes, right, you've, you've built this thing over like over a few years and now you can kind of burst onto this scene looking like you're, you're, you know, you're well-established because you have been, right? You've been working in the trenches when no one's talking about crypto or when people are saying it's dead, right? So I feel like uh, it's, you know, it's a blessing and a curse, right? It, it sucks because you, you can't really talk to people about it in that moment. Everyone's like, isn't this just a scam? But then uh, you can build your foothold. So very cool. So um, you, you spoke a little bit about uh, Pazar, and I would like to kind of get a little bit of a better sense of um, what what like a decentralized OTC marketplace is, right? Because I'm, I'm I'm familiar with DEXs, right? Decentralized exchanges. Um, how how does a decentralized OTC marketplace work, and how does uh, who are the primary users of this tool? Yeah. So. Uh, just to explain in the context of over-the-counter uh, trades, actually, uh, first it mentioned actually higher relevant in the crypto industry. If I would have to give a rough estimates, around half-half is on exchanges and half of half is actually bilaterally negotiated. So it's an over-the-counter trade. So it's highly relevant and also a big part of our industry. What you find out very quickly is if you want to do a big trade over-the-counter, so negotiate with someone, is that for some weird reason, you always have an intermediary in between. A few months ago or a year ago, it was Alameda, one of the biggest you know, market makers who was also a counter trader. Today you have any, many other ones, but it's kind of a bit unusual, or when you think about it closely, it's a bit unusual that in, in a pure example where you actually can have a peer-to-peer -peer transaction, which is what an over-the-counter transaction is, you have an intermediary. So there was a group of uh, passionate uh, crypto individuals in Croatia, where I come from and in Switzerland, we used to discuss this a lot. And we said, this absolutely makes no sense. All the over-the-counter trades should be peer-to-peer -peer done through smart contracts. There should be no intermediary and no risk associated with the intermediaries. So this was actually kind of the birth of Pazar was when we said, what is the vision of the crypto industry? It seems like over-the-counter transactions are a perfect definition that can fit into the values of our industry. But for some weird reason, we always have these intermediaries. So let's kick them out. Namely, we said, let's put together a platform. Basically, this is an Ethereum a platform where you have counterparties that can you know, come to this platform, find each other, meaning kind of you say, hey, I would like to do a big trade and announce it. 
And then people who are listening could say, hey, I would like to be on router that set. And then you can basically execute that transaction in a trustless manner without any intermediaries. So this is in a nutshell, you know, the story about Pazar, which is still an early stage project, to be honest, but it's a one that I feel is perfectly in line with the values. Of yeah, I mean, it's so funny to have like, like it's, it's directly counter to the ethos of the industry. Like you're talking about it's peer to peer, but then you have these intermediaries. Um, but people still want to have the trust. So I'm assuming you guys created some sort of audited smart contract that is has a UI on the platform that then customers interact with. And you like, I would have to say, hey, I want to sell, you know, a thousand Bitcoin. Um, does someone want to fill that order? Does someone have to fill that exact order or can they partially fill it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I mean, uh, I'm definitely happy to provide access to people who would like to try it because it's a live and a, a live platform. Yeah. But literally, it works exactly kind of as you mentioned. Is you literally go up and you hook up your wallet, MetaMask wallet, yep. and then you communicate interest, either right. you want to buy or you sell. And then you communicate that interest in an anonymous manner. Mm -hmm. And then people who are viewing the platform can see, okay, somebody wants to sell a thousand bitcoins or even buy a thousand bitcoins, right? And then they can actually uh, uh, submit that they want to actually match that order. And then you kind of have a call of interest. And then when that call uh, basically ends, then whatever is filled gets matched and executed. And if there's something remaining, then obviously it's remaining. But if it's fully, then, then it's, the transaction is fully done. Cool. So my next question was going to be about uh, market making and kind of you breaking down the function that it serves. And, and you've touched on it already. Like, obviously, you know, liquidity is a huge issue in, in the market. So we want to make sure that this is, but could you go into a little bit more detail as to like what market making is and, and, and what, what the role it serves in the industry? Yeah. So, uh, so just to mention that market makers and market making are crucial for our ecosystem because they're the ones who solve the problem or the puzzle of liquidity. And now when people ask me, okay, what does market making look like? What do you actually do? First, they'll mention that it's, you have to separate or kind of differentiate a bit the market making when you do it for an exchange or when you do it for a specific token of a project, which is that token. When you actually market make for an exchange, literally what happens, so these are usually centralized exchanges on very few rare occasions, decentralized exchanges. But literally what you do is you approach them or they approach you and they will tell you, hey, uh, you know, we need to have liquid books for Bitcoin against dollars. Meaning actually, if people want to come and execute a trade, there should be a fairly tight spread. So difference between the buying and the spreading price, they should be fairly tight. If they want to do a bigger trade, they should do that easily, not that they move the price a lot. So kind of deep order book. And you should do this service at, at all times, so 24-7. So this is exactly what the market maker does, actually. So he literally, let's say, if you're market making for Bitcoin against dollar, it's a very wrong traded, uh, you know, pair. So you can source your pricing from, you know, Binance or Coinbase or whatever is your favorite exchange. You can create that fair price, and then you quote a deep order book around that fair price. And then if you know when people trade against you, you can hedge that exposure somewhere else, kind of offload it. You don't want to take risk, or you can hold risk if you want. But this is in a nutshell kind of what it works. So, and this is what I describe is usually market making for highly liquid tokens. So you work with exchanges around that. When you market make for a project, this is very different than when you work together with an exchange because a, a project usually gets told upfront by an exchange that they will not list them unless they have a market maker. So if you're a project, you use your own token, you approach Binance, they will tell you, let's say as a, in a dream scenario, they say, yes, we will list you, 
but they will tell you, but we're not listing you unless you have a market maker who provides liquidity for your token, because if there's no liquidity the token is dead. Usually there's a price drop associated with that, and then we don't want this nonsense on our exchange. You need to have liquidity for your token, get yourself a market maker. And then the principle is also the same here, is you want to enable that the community who trades the token of that project, so it has a tight spread, but obviously not as tight for Bitcoin against dollar, but maybe kind of still tight, deep order books so people can trade, and likewise, you should do that at all times. Now, the difference here is obviously that you cannot source a price for the token because you know, it's not like a well-known traded token, so you kind of know what's the price is, but kind of the market maker has to discover that price. And that price usually moves based on the supply and demand change. So if more people buy, kind of the price rises up. If more people sell, kind of the price goes down. So this is in a nutshell kind of what market making, how market making is done. And it revolves around this so-called liquidity KPIs. So literally when you work with someone, be that an exchange or a token issuer, Literally, it will be like we need to keep the spread within a certain you know amount. So let's say less than 0.5%. You should quote $100,000 on both sides of the order book. And please do that 24-7 or 99% of the time throughout the week. So this is how market making works. Okay. So like when I look on CoinGecko, for example, and I can and I look at the markets that it's on, if I look at the 2% depth and the, you know, like so so that. Is is that where like if I if I what it's going to take to move the price either two percent up or two percent down on on any given exchange is that kind of like the depth that you're talking about? Yes, yes, okay. exactly. And I I think you mentioned something very important here is that even the uh, the data aggregators are aware of importance of liquidity that they even quantify it for you. Imagine that you are a retail investor, you can go on Coin Market Cap and see this liquidity score. How you know amazing is that is that pe the people even tell you how good liquidity is. And you mentioned that usually they report what's the depth, depth or the volume within liquidity within a certain price band. So that means like if I want to, you know, move uh, buy ten thousand bucks worth of tokens, will I move it a lot or not? How much liquidity there is? And also they quantify this. They provide this liquidity score, confidence score, which also tells you like how real the liquidity is. Right. Because right. obviously. Our, our, our industry has a problem with wash trading with a lot of nonsense. So this you know, confidence score also tells you like, is this volume, is this liquidity real or is this nonsense? Right. Obviously as a project, you don't wanna have horrible liquidity within this price band. And also you don't wanna have like low confidence score that everybody says, look, this is wash trading. This is nonsense, don't touch the token. Right, you know, cause I mean, as an accountant specifically, like we, we, we have issues with you know, if I'm working with a project that takes token, like a percentage of a token for incubating that project, and now I need to move a large, let's say it's 1%, you know, on a, that's a significant, it doesn't sound significant, but when it comes to liquidity, that is a very significant portion of the supply. And so, you know, it's important to understand those liquidity dif uh, differences. So you can put liquidity discounts on what you have on your balance sheet, because ultimately, if I try to move 1% of the supply of a token that's on a DEX and they only have a, you know, 1% of the supply as the liquidity pool, I'm going to basically crash that price, you know, close to zero, right? So yeah, it's really important to understand that. And I don't think enough people understand that they have the tools available to them to look in depth at this on the different data aggregators. So it's really cool that um, you, you, you highlight that. So great. Um, so uh, another question I had for you was, you know, with your background in high frequency trading and market microstructure, 
How do you see these elements influencing the crypto industry, uh, particularly in terms of accounting and tax considerations? Yeah. So um, <clears throat> what I want to say is that my experience, you know, how uh, liquidity market making and market microstructure impacts a crypto company is actually especially related to uh, audits and also accounting on a month-to-month -month basis. You actually touched upon something very, very important is that they, uh, today actually crypto companies have such large treasuries, either be that of their own token or treasuries just because they accumulated assets. I mean, I can tell you, for instance, MakerDAO has a huge, huge balance sheet. It's a huge you know, uh, treasury. And they have to understand like how realistic this treasury is and how they need to manage risks according to that. So, and you, you mentioned this very correctly. I mean, a lot of projects, you know, they have uh, a large amount of their own token. For instance, Uniswap is really well known that they have actually massive position in their own token. And then they say, yeah, our treasuries, as an example, over 1 billion. Yeah, but my friend, if you try to sell those 1 billion into the market, you're going to crash it to zero. So it's not 1 billion. Well, that was the same with FTX, right? They had like, they had, you know, they were inflating their balance sheet with their own FTX, you know, their FTT token. And then, but realistically, they had a bunch of it out of circulating supply. So, yes. you know, if yes. that circulating supply comes into supply, sorry to cut you off, but that, that, that was huge. That was a huge reason why FTX had such a big gap in their balance sheet as well. Yes, absolutely. And this is a very specific scenario that you described here is that Alameda Research actually took leverage based on that collateral actually of FTT, FTX tokens, FTT tokens, which were actually highly illiquid for the size of the leverage position. Mm -hmm. And now when you kind of reflect around that, you realize that you know accounting and your financial position is so important, but it's very much driven by liquidity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's why CFOs and people who kind of manage that have also have to have a very good understanding of the markets so of the market structure, actually, and how liquidity or illiquidity can very severely impact their business and increase risks. Yeah, very nice point. Yeah. And I mean, I think another challenge that this stuff poses is that when you have these massive microtransactions, like... People don't really realize the 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 strain that this puts on the accounting function because you have so many transactions that you need to reconcile. So it's <clears throat> excuse me, it highlights the importance of a subledger and things like that, where you're you, you know you can't be reactive to this stuff. You need to be proactive in 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 getting your data cleaned up because ultimately, when you have these these you know hundreds of thousands of transactions, because you are doing market making in this case, you know. You, you need to make sure you're tracking that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and just to say is, I mean, what you perfectly explain is actually a challenge of crypto companies who do transactions as a normal course of their business is actually, you, you know this very well, that at the end of the month, you need to close the books. Mm -hmm. Meaning if you say to your accounting partner, you have an internally an accountant, you say, this is our balance sheet at the end of the month, you have to demonstrate how you ended up there. And that means reconciliation of all of these trades and showing actually that your balance sheet actually is in line with what you actually claim is so important because as you know, in the end of the calendar year or financial year, you have an audit where everything has to match up. So you have to kind of all those months when you were closing your books, at the end, the auditor has to sign that off and says, yes, there was, everything is in line because if the books are off, then you have a, I mean, you, I'm sure you know, these are huge headaches <laughs> to close the books. It can be a nightmare, yeah. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm working with a project right now with reflection tokens, and that's that's like a whole nother like can of worms. But anyways, 
Um, so, uh, so given your involvement in various research projects backed by the e EU and your participation in the Foresight Project, how do you perceive the current regulatory landscape for crypto businesses, particularly in terms of, of the accounting and tax compliance function? Yeah. So in context of the current challenges that our industry has, I think they're very much reflective of a fair, fairly challenging situation with the US regulator, especially around what classifies as a security or a non-security. There's extremely actually importance of that for our industries because I'm sure you know this very well, that from a tax perspective, it's highly different treated if you are selling or trading securities and the tax consideration than if you're not, for instance. So to give you like a clear example, actually, in Switzerland, where I you know, come from, you know, if you're trading securities, you, know, uh, you actually have to pay a stamp duty on each transaction, actually. And imagine how different you know, a crypto market maker would have to operate and how different the business model would be if you would have to actually pay tax on each of the transactions he executes, which, by the way, market makers execute thousands and millions of transactions, actually. So really important consequence is actually that for the crypto industry, in my view, is that we stay within the domain of non-securities so that we are actually issuing and trading and managing non-utility or payment tokens. And we, and especially around the, uh, due to the challenges around uh, tax issues, I mean, or tax challenges or tax payments for that. And likewise also from my experience is actually working with auditors who are licensed by or uh, authorized by a regulator also, the uh, tax, uh, sorry, the accounting considerations are very much different because the reporting that you have to do and uh, the detail of the, of the uh, analysis that you have to do to close your books are actually highly different if you're trading securities. So I think, you know, though, this is something that people kind of uh, don't consider immediately because it's maybe not in the spotlight <clears throat> of these challenges, but the consequences of uh, a regulator that create everything a security token could be massive especially in a huge impact on the CFOs and the accounting departments. Yeah, I think that there needs to be kind of like a better, I mean, we, we've heard of like, you know, whether something is sufficiently decentralized or, or, or whatever, but I think, you know, obviously we need a new set of rules because it's a completely new financial asset type, right? So, and, and it's not just one, you know, as you, as you, as you highlight, you know, there's utility tokens, there's security tokens, you know, which I think the obvious answer is there, you know, we have, Stable coins, we have NFTs, and NFTs have their own, you know, multiple distinctions. We have single-use NFTs, we have perpetual NFTs, we have real, you know, NFTs that represent real assets. So, you know, we can't just have one set of rules that blanketly try to get applied to this industry because ultimately, as you allude to, there's 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 nuance here, and it really changes the way that business have to, have to operate. And so when we re when we operate in a, in a mucky like not clear regulatory environment it, it it provides a lot of uncertainty and markets as we know don't don't really like that so when i think about the sec i'm always like you're literally providing less certainty in a market and 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 and, and how is that protecting investors by not providing clear rules so hopefully with these you know with binance and and coinbase Going up against the SEC right now, I, I, I'm hoping that we get a little more clarity in the future because, you know, while the U.S. isn't everything and it's becoming less, you know, less of a of a of a um, of a voice in, in the financial markets, you know, just simply because of our lack of um, movement on this and our, uh, I, I think that hopefully we get more clarity in the next couple of years here. So 
We'll see. Yeah. Um, we'll see and we're all positive. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. My, one of my last questions here is, you know, looking ahead, how do you see the crypto industry evolving, especially in related in, in relation to accounting and finance? And what advice would you give businesses to prepare for these changes? Yeah. So I would have to say is that what I fir f first feel a trend actually is actually adopting all the benefits of the crypto industry when it comes to efficiencies around payments. So to give a very concrete example, you know, most of the crypto companies have actually fully adopted uh, the, you know, uh, the solutions within the crypto industry. And I think like to illustrate that, I think going forward, if you have clients in the crypto industry, maybe 99% of them will actually pay for your services in crypto. Meaning actually then also for your accounting and finance considerations, you should also adopt the tools and methodologies that can easily reconcile and actually provide you a clear picture actually how your balance sheet looks like. So if I would have to kind of tell to um, the crypto community kind of which direction uh, to focus on is actually on really leveraging the benefits of what uh, the crypto as an industry can offer. But having said that, I also say this with a disclaimer, I think the regulation is going to become more stricter going forward for specific parts of our industry. And there the tendency of the regulator will be to go centralized, which maybe you know will kind of push us more towards the direction of uh, traditional finance industry where, you know, again, the tools are there developed, but the question is, are there the right fit for the crypto industry? You know that, I mean, you know this very well, that actually there are accounting and, and finance softwares actually in the traditional finance industry, but do they actually understand the nuances that you just mentioned a few minutes ago yeah. around the tokens, around the, how the payments works, around the settlement even many times? Do they don't even assume immediate settlement, you know? So I think like, these are, but I think this will be a really a challenge of the regulated uh, companies in the crypto industry, less of our, of our pure crypto players. And um, I really, I mean, the, what I think some of the uh, learning lessons from the blowups of Celsius, BlockFi, and so on, when you realize that they many times didn't even know how their balance sheet look, looks like, how much they have borrowed, how much they have lent out. I think having a clear, clear book actually for yourself, for your CFO, or for the management and for the whole board, then on a month-to-month -month basis, you know how you look like, what are your risks and how you manage them. I think this will be a huge, it's a huge challenge at the moment, but huge opportunity uh, for somebody to take on that challenge. Yeah, and, and I mean, I, I remember hearing that uh, or reading that um, SBF was, was saying like, oh yeah, we would find $50 million, you know, here and there, such is life, you know, and it's like... Yes. You know, they, yes. they didn't have an accounting department and, and they didn't have any grasp on it at all. And, and they were just at, at a time they were making so much money that it didn't matter. But um, eventually it matters, especially when there's uh, so, some other dominoes that fall in the industry, with, as did happen in 2022. So um, great. So the last question I kind of had for you is, uh, you know, we talked a little bit before the before we started recording about your new project with uh, Swiss Asset DAO. Uh, I just wanted to give you a little bit of uh, platform there to talk a little bit more about that project and kind of what what it's what it's looking to do in the industry as well. Yeah, yeah. Thanks very much for doing that. Really appreciate it. And just to mention that Swiss Asset DAO is a community initiative here in Switzerland to enable DAOs to have legal certainty. So what we actually realized today that the DAOs are actually such huge stakeholders in our industry today. For instance, MakerDAO is such an important player as a protocol, but also such an important player because of their treasury. 
But what you find out very quickly is that even though you have these entities that are shaped in line with the values of decentralization, when you need to touch the real world, then you realize all of a sudden actually that you know what you have in mind as a, as a crypto uh, in industry player doesn't really fit the real world and the laws and the regulation that fit there. So what the Swiss, DAO, uh, 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 Swiss Asset DAO initiative actually, what we want to do is create a template smart contracts for projects to come to Switzerland, say we want to create a DAO and that they have these template smart contracts that they enable you governance and uh, operations in line with the value of decentralization, but also give you the protection that you would get from uh, an entity like a foundation or an association and give you legal certainty that you're doing everything in the right way. So I couldn't be more excited about this. You know, DAOs are still in the early days, but I feel this will give them an opportunity to kind of rise up again, kind of catch a bit more attention. And I, you know, my anticipation is in the future, we're going to have hundreds of thousands of DAOs and it's on the, uh, it's uh, our duty as a community to kind of be a bit of a forward looking and start building on top of that and then enable first in Switzerland, but also soon across the whole globe for people to be able to uh, set up DAOs and operate in a fully a compliant legal and certain way. That's that's amazing because you know as you highlight like there's right now there is a lot of uncertainty around DAOs and I feel like people spin up what they call DAOs but they're not really DAOs you know and um, because they're not either decentralized or whatever and uh, you know it's it's great that you guys are providing the tools for more, more companies to be able to do that and to have a have a a, a haven within Switzerland where where people can can know that they have a little bit more certainty and can can roll these out in a more uh, cost-effective way as well because there's you're standardizing those contracts. That's really cool. I'm, I'm glad glad you guys are working on that. So thank you so much for joining us today, Anton. And uh, uh, really great to have you. And 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 thank you again. Awesome. Thanks a lot. And really cool discussion. I'm glad we made accounting and finance very sexy topic for this. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. <laughs> That's what we try to do here. So so thanks again, and we'll we'll, we'll chat soon. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Take Bye. care. Bye.